Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview, take a walk down memory lane with Robbie Krieger and John Densmore, the two surviving members of The Door. The Doors are one of the most influential rock bands of all time. Their lasting hits have left an indelible mark on rock and roll, and their lead singer was the quintessential rock star. Name? Jim. Occupation. Boyish charm with a hint of danger, Jim Morrison had an irresistible stage presence. His mischievous smile and wild abandon made him unforgettable. But he didn't become the Lizard King all on his own. Jim Morrison met keyboardist Ray Manzarek while attending film school at UCLA. And in 1965, the two joined forces with drummer John Densmore, who introduced them to guitarist Robbie Krieger. The band had a unique sound, in part because of Robbie's flamingo background and John's jazz sensibilities. The band's first breakout single, Light My Fire, went number one. Robbie Krieger wrote the hit song, and Jim Morrison made it come alive. Morrison relished the spotlight. He became known for his onstage antics. His unpredictability magnified his appeal while also sparking conservative backlash. After five years together, the Doors decided to stop touring because Morrison's erratic behavior was escalating. When you're unwanted, streets are uneven when you're down. Jim Morrison lived by the words, you can't burn out if you're not on fire. He was only 27 years old when he died. Despite their short time together, The Doors are one of the best-selling bands of all time, and the mystique of Jim Morrison has only grown.
It was at this L.A. institution, the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, that the doors were first discovered. I met with guitarist Robbie Krieger and drummer John Densmore at the place where it all started. Whiskey-A-Go-Go. Yeah. Same old dump, <laughs> but a lot of great music goes on here. Tell me about your memories. Give me a recollection. What was the room like? What was the crowd like? What was the moment like when you were playing the Whiskey or Go-Go? Well, the whiskey in those days, it, it was kind of a fancy, schmancy place. It was, uh, you know, people would get dressed up and stuff and come here. And then they had the Go-Go girl cages up on, up on the top. Uh, you know. But the times changed. The hippie thing came along and... So by the time you got here, the Go-Go girls are gone. No, they still had some Go-Go they, they, girls. They were, uh, you know, they were trying to figure out they how to dance. They were on their way out. <laughs> they were trying to figure out how to dance to This Is The End. And that didn't work. So, uh, But you're sitting up there with your drummer's perch, if you will, John, and looking at what was the crowd like. Hippies started coming in. And we were the house band. And all the great bands came in. Van Morrison, The Birds, Frank Zappa, on and on and on. And uh, we opened for them. So we always tried to blow them away, you know. <laughs> we, we developed a following. And I remember looking back in the booth and Elmer would be sitting with the Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton or Steve McQueen would be back there and Nicholson. And, and we'd work our butt off to captivate everybody. And, and we did. You know... I can't help but think you and the doors, the music has really lasted 50 years and still going. One of my author's favorite authors, a guy named Walker Percy. Sure. He once had one of his characters talk about Mozart and said, you know, damn, 300 years and you're still the best. Huh. Well, it can be argued that in terms of a, a four or five year spread, here are the doors at least two surviving members of the Doors, 50 years and still at least among the best. Pretty amazing. Maybe the key is Jim saying, okay, we're going to share everything. I don't want lyrics by me. All songs by the Doors. That's it. Yeah, nobody had ever done that before. So then, then all four of us give 200%. We're, we're a total democracy. That's, maybe that's the key. Well, I, I find it really remarkable that after uh, all this time, and you think about how many bands have come along, one of the two of you said at one time that what the band tried to do, we tried to hypnotize them. Said. Is that what you started out so, trying to do, Robbie? Um, no, I, I don't think we tried to hypnotize them, but I think we did. And we did hypnotize them. And one reason was the fact that none of us really stuck out, you know, and said, hey, I'm me, I'm doing this great thing here on this, you know, I'm taking over. I think that made it for a very hypnotic kind of sound. And that's what you call feel, you know, in music. I would say it evolved into a ritual. It wasn't entertainment. We weren't doing a show. 
somehow the audience was with us and we were going on a journey, some kind of seance or some kind of thing. And you could feel it in the room. We'd play Light My Fire and everybody would get up and dance and go crazy. And when we'd come out and do the end and people would leave silently, which was maybe more of a compliment. They were taking it home. There was something that happened. We can't explain it, but wow, it's powerful. Something was happening and powerful. What was that thing? That's what I'm searching for. That obviously the doors touched a chord at a particular moment in history, but I can't put my hand, I can't focus my mind on exactly what that was. Well, uh, yeah, I think the audience, when they came to a, a, a good door show, because we might have had some bad ones too, when, when Jim was in the right frame of mind, uh, there was a connection that happened with the audience and, and us. And uh, uh, people love that, you know. If somehow we all, the audience and the band, experienced a full gamut of human emotions like silence and terror and joy with dancing and, and the whole everything in between, maybe that's uh, what happened. Just what it's like to be human. Well, we've talked some uh, about Jim and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts about it. Uh, before we forget it, there was, after all, a fourth member of the Doors. Ray Manzarek, yes. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, Ray played the bass with his left hand uh, and the organ with his right hand. So he had this ability to split his brain into two musicians. I mean, that right there is amazing. And then on top of that, he writes these really catchy da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da intro to Light My Fire or the solo in Riders on the Storm, which is etched on all our brains. So if you hear four bars of Ray's keyboard playing, you know it's him. And that's the mark of some unique, great artist. But you know, one of the most important things about Ray was that he really discovered Jim Morrison. Yeah. Because yeah. you know, Jim, Jim and Ray were at the film school at UCLA. And most of the kids there thought Jim was just a weirdo. And you know, they, they, they had no, uh, insight into his genius, you know. You know, one day Jim showed him some of the words uh, for Moonlight Drive, a couple songs, and Ray said, wow, those could be amazing rock and roll songs, and, and that's really where the whole thing started. Stay with us as Dan Rather, Robbie Krieger, and John Densmore of The Doors keep the music alive when we come back. This is The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Let's swim to the moon This is The Big Interview with Dan Rather, featuring Robbie Krieger and John Densmore of The Doors. In the mid to late 1960s, The Doors spoke to a growing counterculture movement as civil rights, women's liberation, and anti-war protests began changing the social and political landscape. There was a period, the period when the two of you were coming up, which I would call the hippie part of the 1960s. 
roughly, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe 64, 65, 66. Was that, for all intents and purposes, the end of the hippie period? You're right. I would say the hippie period was maybe 64, 5 to 67. By 68, it started to spiral down into uh, abusive What do you drugs. expect? Nixon got in. Yeah. So, um, but you know, Dan, uh, I don't like pe when people diss the '60s as as a failure. Um, I think the seeds of civil rights, uh, peace movement, feminism, all were planted in the '60s. They're just really big seeds, and maybe they take a hundred years for full fruition. Mm -hmm. So don't diss. Get out your watering can. Well, I mean, the, you know, to me, the early 60s, like 64, 65, 66, was probably the best time ever, uh, you know, as far as uh, freedom and freedom of thinking. Um, and then, you know, you might, you go a little too far and then things, then they pull you back, you know. So like I said, when Nixon got in, they shot the Kennedys, uh, it all went to hell, but well, then there was, of course, there was the war, and there were pretty big race riots. We had real racial right, outbursts. Right. Dr. Martin Luther King was sh shot. I take your point, Robbie, that let's say the best of the 60s right. ended by the time we got to 68, 69, and 70. Exactly. Well, I would talk history with you for the rest of the afternoon, but let's get back to the music. When you first started The Doors, for what were you aiming, John? What kind of music? I was aiming... Uh, to pay the rent for 10 years if I could. I'm 72 and a half now. My hair is white. And we're still talking about this damn band. <laughs> and I'm proud. To my ear, and keep in mind I have virtually no musical education at all, there's flamenco influence, definitely, which you would understand coming from Robbie's background. Uh, Chicago blues. Right. Jazz, sort of a, a, a melting of those. Have I missed anything? Jim, Jim's words. You got my jazz, Ray Chicago blues, Robbie's folk and flamenco, and then the word man, this guy who had read every book on the planet, and that went on top of that bed of gumbo of sound. Yeah, it was just a great melting pot of, of four people that brought, you know, different things uh, together and we were able to work together. You know, that's the main thing is uh, yeah. for some reason our four personalities work together because there's plenty of musicians out there that are from flamenco or from jazz uh, and blues. But uh, I think it was more the personalities that allowed us to somehow get the best out of, of, of all that stuff and mix it up and, and turn it to greatness. John, how, how did the two of you meet and when did you meet? Oh, boy. Wow. High school. You're straining my brain cells. <laughs> High school, yeah. Yeah. And we actually formed a band, John and I, and we called it the Psychedelic Rangers. <laughs> we, we were then experimenting with then legal psychedelics. <laughs> Do you remember when you first met Jim Morris? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I, John had met the other guys and was actually playing with them. Then they needed uh, a new guitar player, and 
So John brought Jim over to my house, and uh, I played them some stuff uh, which I think they liked. And, you know, to me, Jim was just a normal guy that he didn't seem uh, anything out of the ordinary to me the first time I met him. But he w he had these words, you know, that, that they showed me, and and I, I knew that those were pretty unusual. And when did you first meet him, John? At the Maharishi Meditation, Ray, the keyboard player, said, hey, I hear you're a drummer. Come on over to my garage and we'll jam. So I go to the garage and um, lurking in the corners, this guy, bare feet, uh, T-shirt and cords, really shy. I mean, Ray says, this is Jim, the singer. And I'm like, are you kidding? But then he hands me uh, some lyrics. Uh, Day destroys the night, night divides the day, tried to run, tried to hide, break on through to the other side. I'm like, wow, I want to drum to that immediately. Now, you said he was shy. It's hard for me to imagine a shy Jim Morrison. He had never sung before. Hmm. He'd said he heard a concert in his head, but he had never done this. So it's just a gift because a lot of singers... Uh, you know, blow out their throats singing improperly, and he never did. And he could scream from the bowels of his soul. But in the beginning, he was, well, he, he would face us at the London Fog down the road. He couldn't even look out at the audience, but he gradually evolved into the Lizard King. So I think, you know, he always had that in him. He, he was just waiting to, to let it out. As he said, it was like a a bowstring being drawn back for for 21 years and then let go. Come on, come on, come on, come on, now touch me, babe. Can't you see that I am not afraid? What was that promise that you made? Why won't you tell me what she said? Who was he in the final analysis? Who was he? You saw him good times, bad times, and times in between. A great tortured artist. Um, genius, I think genius, too, you know. Uh, Dionysus and Apollo, self-destruction and creativity don't always come in the same package. Picasso lived in 90, but with Jim, they came together. And... Uh, sad on a personal level, difficult to lose him. Time has helped me notice that, wow, he was, I really miss his, his words, God. And, and melodies, he had melodies in his head too. Couldn't play a guitar, couldn't play a chord on anything. Mm -hmm. But in his mind, he had yeah, this first, stuff. Uh, the first six or eight songs that he came up with, it was, uh, he was doing some psychedelics, you know, and Jim would just hear a concert in his head. And all he had to do was write it down. But, you know, he could remember how the music went. And so he would kind of tell us. And, and he, he said he thought of melodies to remember the words. And then he'd just sing it a cappella to us. Right. And we'd go, wait, wait, hold it. E flat. Okay, go. No, stop. You know, and we'd kind of eke it out together. No wonder it took so long to put together a recording or an album if you work that way. Well, yeah, no, actually that was that was pretty quick to do it that way because at least one of the guys has the whole 
song in his head, so all he has to do is explain it to the other guy. That when it started taking long was after we ran out of songs, and you know, I, I was starting to write more, and, and Jim was starting to write less, and uh, you know, we, we had less time to come up with songs too, because you know, once you have a hit album, you gotta come up with the next one. So uh, The incubation period is gone yeah. with success, and everybody wants to hear Light My Fire, great, but we want to write new stuff. You know, for the first album, we recorded that thing in less than a week. Yeah, wow. Yeah, because, it, you know, but we had two years in order to work the songs out, right. so they Here. were perfect, you know. After the first and the second album, we still had plenty of songs that we could work on. But after that, it was like come up with brand new stuff in the studio, so, you know. And... Jim's self-destruction is increasing. He's moved on to alcohol, you know. Which is probably the worst drug of all. Well, let's say so, something you're saying, for, for, particularly for Jim. John, did you know when you first met him or in the early going that his father was a decorated admiral in the U.S. Navy? Back, no, I, commanded a carrier off Vietnam? No, I did not. And in fact, when we... Uh, finally got a little record deal. We had individual bios, and in his section where it has parents, he put deceased, which they were not. No. But um, kind of some friction no. there with his dad. <laughs> well, there was definitely some friction. <laughs> That's right. Friction, to say the least. <laughs> uh, father, <laughs> I want to... Mother... Uh, well, you've raised it. I was just about to raise it. <laughs> Was it at the London Fog or here at the Whiskey or Go-Go? Yeah. Here at the Whiskey or Go-Go, from what I can read, he was under, under the influence of something. And he said some terrible things about his father uh, and his mother, so much so that even here at the Whiskey or Go-Go, which is not exactly a, a parish, <laughs> that they, they fired you. So what was that well, about? What, what did uh, that tell us about Jim? Dan, that terrible, I think, is the wrong... Um, I mean, I didn't know. They sounded kind of terrible to me. Here I am drumming, and he's like, Father, I want to... But then later I realized, oh, he's kind of framing the Oedipal myth, Greek mythology, into the end. And, uh, of course, we were fired uh, immediately. But um, maybe it was metaphoric for all those hippies. He's helping them cut their umbilical cord from the parents, you know, at the time, anyone over 25, we didn't trust because we got lied to about Vietnam. So. Well, I don't think he was thinking about all that when he said those words. I mean, well, when, when he. Subconsciously, I think. That night, he didn't make it to, to the show, the first set. Yeah. And uh, we were really worried because he'd never missed a, a show before. And so we went out looking for him. And um, I think you and Ray found him at the motel down there. Yeah. And he had taken too much LSD, even for Jim, which was tough to do because he, he took a lot. Uh, so, so much so that he was like hiding under the bed. So anyway, we got him back here for the next set. And that's when this, and he says, I want to do the end. And we go, the end, we always do that at the last, as the last song of the set. No, I want to do it now. I want to do it first. <laughs> so, okay, we do the end. 
and that that was the first time that those that part those words came out and I think it was it was just much of a surprise to us as anybody else the thing about those uh, words is that they they are the Oedipal complex you know you want to if you read Freud and all that there's something in everybody that wants to take your mother and away from your father and you want to you want to do something better than your father did thereby killing him you know metaphorically uh it's in all of us but he really felt it that night i mean it wasn't just uh you know something he wrote it was it was he really felt that i didn't know what to think you know in those days dan it was like in the 60s it was like that was the era of do your thing man you know whatever happens goes it's cool as long as you're not hurting anybody you know it's good um, it really didn't uh, surprise me that much to tell you the truth mother I wanted Jim Morrison's self-destructive tendencies were well-known, but his untimely death at age 27 still shocked friends and fans alike. You're listening to music legends Robbie Krieger and John Densmore of The Doors dish the truth with Dan Rather in The Big Interview. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Let's listen to History Come Alive with Robbie Krieger and John Densmore of The Doors. Before you slip into unconsciousness, I'd like to have another kiss. After years in the spotlight, Jim Morrison moved to Paris with his girlfriend to focus on poetry. He died suddenly on July 3rd, 1971. His gravesite is now a shrine where fans from all over the world still come to pay tribute. We've talked a lot about your success, individual success and the combined success of the doors. Robbie, and I'll give you a second to think about this. What's the biggest mistake you've made in your life? Well, you know, looking back, obviously, if we could have, uh, if we could have saved Jim Morrison, you know, because that was the, the, the worst thing that ever happened to, to us uh, when Jim passed, you know, at the age of 27. You saw the manifestation of this self-destruction. And without judging you at all, did you ever think to yourself, listen, we have to get him some help. We need to get him to a psychiatrist. We need to get him to a dry-out we, 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 we tried. We tried, Dan. Yeah. Uh, my, my dad was into psychiatry. He, he, went, to, he went to one himself, and, uh, and, and so we, all, we brought Jim over to my house a couple of times, and my dad would talk to Jim about, you know, maybe seeing somebody. And he did Jim, go. I mean, Jim knew that he was, you know, had a problem, especially mm -hmm. with the alcohol. 
But he did go one time. Did yeah, you hear about yeah, that? Yeah. And he just put the guy on, the psychiatrist on the whole time. Just put him on, fooled with him. He wasn't going to buy into yeah, he being thought... introspective. <laughs> Jim's problem was he was too smart. He, he, you know, he, was, he knew he was probably smarter than the psychiatrist. <laughs> I was going, what's this guy going to tell me? But, uh, you know, in those days, we didn't have Betty Ford or anything like that. It was, right. it was the, the days of uh, do your own thing, man. Everything's cool. You know, if some guy wants to, to uh, kill himself with alcohol, yeah, go do it, man. You know, it was you didn't tell people what to do. Uh, we didn't you know, know we had a disease. Yeah, you know? to us, it was just a phase now, he was going through. And, and, and you know... Uh, People have asked me over the years, well, if Jim was around today, would he be clean and sober? And I always used to say, no, uh, he was a kamikaze drunk. And I've changed my story the last few years because I think about Eric Clapton. Eminem uh, is a very angry but real talented guy like Jim, and he's cleaned up. So, yeah, it's a different time. And if Jim was around, why not? John, what's the biggest mistake you've made in life? Uh, I think one of the really big mistakes in life I made was uh, when we were offered then a lot of money for uh, the idea of using Light My Fire to sell Buick cars. Come on, Buick, Light My Fire. I, along with Robbie and Ray, considered it. And Jim is my ancestor, and he flipped out. And Robbie mainly wrote those words. Why did he flip out? Because he cared about what our entire catalog, everything we were doing. And I think that was a big mistake. Fortunately, he blew up, and we didn't do it. Well, there was a lot of money on the line, so perhaps you can be forgiven for at least entertaining the idea. Yeah, well... Well, what happened was Jim wasn't around at that time. He was off somewhere on a vacation or something. And so we, you and Ray and I got the offer, and we said, oh, this might be cool. You know, it's a little Buick Opal, good on gas and all that. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so uh, we said, oh, yeah, Jim will be okay with it. You know, So we, <laughs> we signed the deal. And then when he came back, Jim was not all right. No. He, he said he'd smash a Buick on television for the commercial. <laughs> he cared so much about all the stuff. You know, we're artists, so it was, art, money isn't first. If you make a bunch of money, great. But um, that shouldn't be the first motive. But you said your main goal at the, in the beginning was to make pay your rent for 10 years. Yeah. Paying my rent at something I love. Nothing wrong with that. No. So what's wrong with selling black Buick Black My Fire? Well, because it's twisting uh, the words. Uh, if you make your words into a jingle, it's the sound of coins in your pocket, and maybe you just sold your audience. The band's songs may not appear in television commercials, but major motion pictures are another story. You're listening to music legends Robbie Krieger and John Densmore of The Doors dish the truth with Dan Rather in The Big Interview. We'll be right back. 
You're tuned into the big interview with Robbie Krieger and John Densmore of The Doors. Here's Dan Rather. Eight years after Jim Morrison's death, The Doors gained a whole new generation of fans when Francis Ford Coppola chose their song, The End, for the opening sequence of Apocalypse Now, one of the most important Vietnam War films ever made. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend. The end. The end was chosen as more or less the theme song, certainly the opening and close of Apocalypse Now. Did you know it was going to be used for that? And what was your reaction? Um, that. They actually had the right to use any Doors music they wanted. Uh, so we made that deal with Francis Ford Coppola uh, before, before they shot the movie. Um, so it was kind of a surprise to me that the end was really the only <laughs> song that they used, especially at the beginning of the movie. You know, it was kind of weird, but, but you know, when I went and saw the movie, I was floored. It was just beautiful opening of the movie, you know, the helicopters going by and and my guitar actually starts the whole soundtrack for the movie. Yeah. Love that. Whatever you thought about the war, that didn't make you feel pretty good. The opening of the film has your guitar riff. Exactly. Incredibly powerful. I mean, Jim originally wrote it kind of as a love song or goodbye song to his girlfriend. It resonated with the guys in Vietnam. They were going through hell, and the song was about darkness, and it worked. Were you surprised they used it in the film? Well, as Robbie said, Francis was a bit of a, uh, dare I say, megalomaniac. I mean, he, he, he purchased all our songs, and then he used one door song. But it was so powerful. You know? There was another scene that I heard about that they, they used Light My Fire. Right. Where, where the soldiers are actually teaching the the Vietnamese kids uh, how to how to sing "Light My Fire." Right. I wish he would have used that one. Hey Dan, can I make a statement to you? Well, you can make a statement, but I asked the question. I got <laughs> it. I got it. I just want to uh, thank you for um, you and your network. Back in the day when we were all coming up, you guys. Um, you showed the body bags coming back from Vietnam. That doesn't go on anymore. And I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you saying that since you've raised it. The doors came into prominence during, in some ways, the height of the Vietnam War. Do you think it still reverberates in American society, or has it finally, finally begun to fade, John? I would say that the government definitely learned thoroughly the lesson of not showing wounded warriors because uh, that uh, that won't help your propaganda for the next skirmish. Well, so, I would say that I'd say we didn't learn our lesson, you know. I mean, the lesson to me for of Vietnam was don't go messing around with other people's countries, uh, you know, unless, uh, unless they're really... Uh, a danger to us, and yeah. we're still doing it. So, so Jim wrote uh, The Unknown Soldier during that period. Right. He didn't name Vietnam. 
um, breakfast where the news is read, television, children fed, unborn living, living dead, bullet strikes the helmet's head, it's all over for the unknown soldier. Maybe he intuited that we didn't thoroughly learn the lessons, therefore we move on to Iraq and Afghanistan and North Korea and whatever the fuck. Well, forgive the personal reference, but uh, I was in Vietnam for 1965-1966, and then back for a shorter time, I was there for about a year, shorter At time later, by 68, 69, and 70, of the music I heard played by soldiers who were actually fighting the war rather than those who might be back in Saigon or someplace. I would say the Doors music and country music were the two genres, if you will, that I heard the most. And my question is, John, why do you think that is? Jim's lyric, lost in a Roman wilderness of pain, all the children are insane, waiting for the summer rain. It resonated, He's singing about hell. Yeah, the Doors were one of the few groups, I think, uh, in the flower power era of what was, you know, in San Francisco and, you know, all that stuff was going on. And, and a lot of the music was about that. But, but the Doors, we, do, we weren't uh, bound by those rules at all. We, you know, we, we, we talked about a lot of darker things. And, uh, and um, I actually wrote a song called Love Me Two Times, which... Right. which I envisioned uh, the, a guy with his girlfriend and and he's going off to Vietnam the next day. So love me two times, I'm going away. Well, I want to ask a difficult question. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I, it'd be historic first if I did. <laughs> but it's awfully hard when you've had as many terrific songs. But I want you to go magic with me. Life's come to an end, it comes to us all, and we're having a memorial service for you. And we want to, we want to play one, one of the Doors songs, one of the Doors songs. What would you have us play? No me moleste mosquito. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> that was a song I wrote after Jim died, and the three of us, John Ray and I, we, we did two albums, actually. And on the second album, I, I had written this song about about a mosquito, which I, I was down in Mexico and I was uh, uh, on vacation. And there was this little band that came down from the hills of, of the mariachi type guys. And they, was, they were singing about a mosquito or something. So I got the idea to write this song. And, uh, and I actually sang it on the album. And... Uh, Believe it or not, that song is after Light My Fire is, was our biggest seller as far as a single goes because it was in Spanish. I, I had the words, no me moleste mosquito, let me eat your burrito or something like that. Uh, and it sold all over the Spanish speaking world and became like a, a, a big hit. A lot of good covers. So that's covers, the song covers. you want as your epitaph. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think so. Yeah, remember that. <laughs> all right. John, what about you? Riders on the storm. Into this house we're born, like an actor out on loan, a dog without a bone. Uh, you know, maybe Robbie and I and Ray and Jim are the four riders on the storm of the apocalypse. 
The, I think that song has probably the best feel of any song we ever did because it's uh, relaxed. Yeah, it's so, uh, and it's Ray's best solo for sure. Oh, yeah. I want to ask you something about, first of all, are you sorry you said it? And if you aren't, what you meant by it? John, you were quoted as saying, you can have a okay guitarist, and if you have a great drummer, you're going to have a great band. But if you have a very good guitarist and a lousy drummer, no way the band is going to make it. Wow, that's a true statement. Wow. When did you say I'm that? I'm not sorry I said that. <laughs> Let me break it down for you, Dan. Uh, the drums and the bass are the rhythm section of a band. It's like the heartbeat. And if it doesn't have a good feel, you can have a fantastic guitar player on top. It's not going to fly. So, but you, if you had a good rhythm section and a you know, mediocre keyboard player, you might be okay. But uh, that sounds self-serving, but th this <laughs> pulse is everything. It's what makes people dance. What do you think, Robbie? Wow. I mean, to, to have a great band, it's all got to be good, you know. Well, I don't want to belabor the point, but for example, if Robbie's playing by himself and he has not a very good drummer, not a very good piano player, it's going to be something I want to hear. Santana plays by himself. So would you agree that there are a few guitarists, Robbie being one, Santana maybe being another, that can carry it on their own? Definitely. When I brought Jim over to Robbie's house, I, I, I remember saying, Robbie, play him a little flamenco, you know? And watching Robbie's hands crawl over the strings like a crab and this gorgeous sound, it seduced Jim. And it had seduced me. So. All right, you're forgiven. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you both. You've been terrific. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks thanks for being so provocative. Well, <laughs> and 50 years in steel rolling, may the adventure continue. Thanks so much. And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind-the-scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing. <laughs>